you're expected to choose a career that's going to last your whole life. And how do you know at that age? I saw my mum's life within accounting and it was high stress, long hours, and I just didn't want to be doing that. Our third child, she was born premature and she actually went to special care. What do you mean my child can't feed? I felt unsupported during that time. I'm more likely to start 20 projects and not finish any of them. We had one where we went on holiday and we just came back and that was it. They just didn't turn up, just didn't come back to work. We must be awful people to work with. I started to realise that whilst I did all these great things, I was also the absolute problem. We've been, we've been very, very clear from very early on to go, if there's a business disagreement, it doesn't go home. Sam's probably better at me than that. I just want to sort of bury my head and hide things and go, oh, it'll be okay in the morning. Hi there, and welcome to the Leaky Bucket Podcast. I'm your host, Ian Morgan, and this is the Financial Performance Podcast for entrepreneurs looking to get a better understanding of their numbers, to plug the leaks in their business, and to move from surviving to thriving. Thank you, Ian, for joining me for another episode of the Leaky Bucket Podcast. Today, I really wanted to delve into life before MBS. Okay, great. Can't wait to uh, get started and tell you all about my journey. So you just left school at 16. You were about to start your first proper job. What was it in? Was it in accounting or was it in something else? No, it was um, It was actually completely different. It was actually in, in sciences. So it was in the NHS and I was, first of all, a trainee and then a pharmacy technician. And how did you get into that? Were you, were you into sciences in school or? No, I was okay. But chemistry particularly was probably my weaker science, which obviously doesn't lend itself to going trained to be technically a chemist. But it was mainly out of sort of, I think, defiance of both the school and my my mum at the time, which was my mum's theory was I should be an accountant. Just it bored me at that point. Uh, and the school were very clear to go. They wanted me to stay because they felt it would be good for the school. I wanted it, I wanted it to be good for me. And yeah, it just didn't feel like the right thing and the right move. So what did your job in the NHS actually entail? What were you doing? Yeah, so there, there was the typical stuff that you see in a normal, you know, sort of high street pharmacy. So just, you know, taking a prescription and dispensing, dispensing tablets, medicines, whatever, uh, versus that prescription. It was okay. It's not overly complex. It was a little bit more interesting in terms of with some of the prescriptions there are still written in abbreviated Latin. So you've got to understand the, the language and the code that's being used. But the most interesting parts were some of the speciality parts. So we're quite rare in terms of at the time, uh, I don't think it exists anymore, but Gloucester Hospital had a uh, an aseptic unit, which is basically, it's cleaner than a, than a theatre that you'd use for surgery. And it's used for making specialist medicines. And one of my roles was making chemotherapy drugs for the cancer patients. And the other was making something called TPN or total parental nutrition, uh, mainly used for premature babies usually pre-34-week sort of gestation. Prior to that point, they don't have a sucking reflex. So a baby that's born prior to that just doesn't have that ability to, to feed. So this is a, a specialist feed that's made specifically for that patient that gives them all of the nutrients and everything they need. And so we would, the blood test taken, we'd then make up that, that solution. They'd then be fed that overnight, uh, that same night. And then repeat the process the following day and keep going until the point they develop a, a sucking reflex. How long did you do that for? 
Uh, okay, so I started straight at 16. I think I think it was done by I was 22. Six years seems a long time, though. I don't know, I think it was quite six years. Terrible memory for looking back that far. But yeah, it was a good chunk of my life. It's certainly by 2002, I definitely started. By 2006, I was out. So yeah, it can only be four years. So I think two years of, of training, two years post-qualification. Then did you go straight into accounting or did you have a bit of time in between? No, so it was straight out of there and into a, a training uh, accounting role. So basically I'd had first child in 2005 and then off the back of that was sort of a realisation to go the way everything was structured. I was just going to be doing minor promotions within that role. No real sense of control over the direction that I was going because you had to wait for people to vacate roles above you for you to be able to move up. And it was a department of 150, 200 people. So there was a lot of competition for any of those roles. And so it was going, actually, the only thing that can change here that I can get a bit more control is either I have to change career or I have to be prepared to convert myself from, from a pharmacy technician uh, through into being a full pharmacist. The only way of doing that was to go to university with one child and another one on the way who was born in summer of 2006, which wasn't really an option. So it was it was changed career and um, what did i what did i know and what do i feel could work in terms of i could build a better career from and so that was a, a shift across to a, to accounting you said that you'd have to work through kind of like 200 people was there anything else from the previous job that was maybe missing because you always said that you didn't want to do accounting when you're you wanted to like rebel do you think <clears> kind of wore off and then maybe you were like actually i do want to do this i think it was an element of growing up um, a bit of maturity. So part of my rebelling of not doing it, one was just typical teenage rebellion, just go, no, I'm not doing what other people tell me I should do. The other was that I saw my mum's life within accounting and it was high stress, long hours. And I just didn't want to be doing that. But I think then as I as I grew that bit and I, I sort of found my own way in the world that I realised that actually there was an element of choice that that was what she was she was living what she'd created because she could have gained more control and she could have worked less hours and she didn't necessarily have to be stressed. She was she's not necessarily causing it, but she was certainly playing a part in causing it. And so therefore it was to go, okay, but I'd be rather be in a situation where I've got those elements and I could attempt to control them than actually I can't control people leaving jobs above me. Like we're going to like manipulate and get people fired. You know, that's just no, <laughs> it's not my style and it's it's just yeah, not good. So it was actually, I'd rather take that and have something that I can, I can control and I can work on as opposed to just, yeah, just be part of the process. Really. You said also your mum was in accounting. Do you have any other influences? Like why, why accounting? I think it was, at the time it was probably the easiest shift through sort of teenage years as my mum was overworked if you like she had lots of um, help that she needed I suppose lots of available work and so it was uh, earn a bit of money help out doing these bits of what I thought at the time were complex bookkeeping or accounting tasks they weren't that complex but it was to go actually I can lean on that to go that's a route in somewhere that I can go I can see how it can lead to running your own business eventually Um, I can see how I can build skills within it I've already I felt at the time I already knew a good chunk of what was yeah, what was needed. I soon found out that wasn't the case, but we'll come back to that <laughs> in a bit. So yeah, it was just uh, it was just all the comfort. It was to go, I'm going to take a risk, but this is sort of a controlled risk because I do have a bit of degree and of knowledge. And actually, if I was getting stuck in terms of learning to retrain, I could always lean on a bit of uh, my mum's knowledge and, and skills and, and get some information from there. When you were younger? 
What did you want to do? I wanted to <laughs> add a couple of things, actually. I, I really, actually, I wanted to be a pilot, but uh, the, the easiest and quickest route in was to go sort of RAF or something like that. And I just yeah, wasn't into going into the army or any type of military. And my alternative was being a paramedic. Again, I don't know why specifically medical. I don't know if you, yeah, unfortunate. I, I've been I've been at the scene of a lot of serious car accidents, and I, I don't know why. Just don't hang around with me if you're driving a car. It's, I don't know. It's probably well into well into double digits, um, even by that point. And I just had sort of a an ability then to remain calm in those situations where there's a lot of people panicking. Just go, actually, where's where's the main issues? Where's the main area? Be it, just be set relatively controlled in those sort of situations. So that sort of intrigued me to go, well, if I've got that skill, I can work upon that and go, just remain calm and that, but didn't necessarily want to be treating people. Yeah, it was just a, it was just a bit of an intrigue, but I didn't necessarily have a, a dream job to go, yeah, that's definitely what I'm going to do. They're just two main ideas I had when in school. But then... It's so hard, isn't it? You're like 13, 14, 15, 16, and you're expected to choose, certainly back in my era, it was expected to choose a career that's going to last your whole life. And how do you know at that age? And that's certainly what we tell our children is like, just don't necessarily be pointless in your education. Choose things that maybe you're interested in. If you're interested and you're good at them and you can work out where you're going as you start to mature and you start to work out what your real interests are. But at, at those sorts of ages, I think it's really, really difficult because you only you only see what you want to see in terms of a job. You don't see the full picture. Yeah, I think even up to the age of like university, even when you're choosing a course at university, I just picked on interests. I didn't pick on, oh, I'm going to do this so that it can get me this job. It is tricky. So with accounting, did you go straight into MBS or, well, obviously not, you didn't go straight into it, but did you work for somewhere else first? Yeah, so I was at uh, an accounting practice. I won't name them because I don't know if that's necessarily fair. Um, but I was at an accounting practice and I, I trained there. They were sort of a, a traditional compliance type practice. Two partners, 15 staff, something around that level. But yeah, a lot of just producing year-end accounts, uh, a couple of specialisms, uh, agricultural doctors, solicitors. I was mainly on the agricultural team, but there were also some general clients in there as well of all sorts of, of different things. And then I was there again, sort of four or five years, I think. So through sort of my training years and then a couple of years post-qualification as well. Do you think that kind of shapes how MBS is today? The fact that you started in such a traditional accountancy firm. Yes, yeah, so there's actually a couple of aspects, I think, that, that shape things. So one was seeing that traditional accounting. First of all, that was what we went and did. When we launched MBS, we did traditional accounting. But what we did was monthly subscriptions because we felt, or, or certainly I felt, what I was seeing was lots of people not bringing in their sets of accounts to have the work done because they didn't want the bill. So how do you relieve or remove that obstacle? And People on monthly subscriptions, it doesn't quite feel so painful as suddenly getting a thousand pound, two thousand pound bill or whatever it might be. That actually they can just get on with bringing it in when is appropriate, as opposed to there being a blockage to that. It was still quite old fashioned in terms of people who'd been there the longest were the ones who got promoted. And that's certainly I knew. So basically everybody kept timesheets and you could tell how much you were making the company off jobs because there was a budget that was given in terms of a, a price. You'd take your hourly rate um, and that would work out how many hours you got. And then you could work out effectively you'd be more profitable on that job than others. And I knew I was adding significant value. But basically the thing was until other people 
move up or go to those roles, you can't go into their roles that they're leaving. And I'm like, yeah, but if I'm better, why can't I jump? Why can't I just jump ahead? And that still lives today in MBS to go, actually, if you've got great people and they come in and they join us and they're great, there's opportunities to to move ahead. And some people just want to be what we would call rock stars. And that means that they're, like, they're just really, really good at the role they do. And they just want to do that role really, really, really well. And that's great. You need rock stars. But when you've got superstars, who are the ones who want to, they, they want to move to the next thing. They want to be learning something new. They want to be doing something bigger and better. You need to create room for them to, to grow and for them to be able to have opportunity. The others around culture. So actually it came full circle that our, we had a, our third child, Ellie. She was, she was born premature and she actually went to special care and she, she didn't in the end, but she was on the verge of needing TPM. And it was seeing it from the other side of the coin and go, I'd never considered like the, the parents and the effect of all the people were going through it to go, what, what do you mean my child can't feed? And now they've got to, they've got to be, have a tube put in them and, and all sorts. And just, it's so weird. It was, I think it was nine days she was in special care. I cannot tell you what I did in those nine days. Like, I genuinely don't know. It was just a bit of a whirlwind. Didn't know if she'd survive. And the bit that was the challenge that came through into our work life from that or in MBS and how that shaped in terms of our culture was it felt like, uh, I think the, the felt like is the important part because it was how I, yeah, how I felt. I felt unsupported during that time. It was, it felt like it was how, when am I coming back to work? How quickly can I do that? Not how's your daughter doing? Is she okay? Does it look like she's going to survive? What's happening? And so on. And I probably learned at that point to go, actually, just you need to, you need to have empathy at all points probably hard for, for males. I, I still bang on about that at times that I have to have to think much harder uh, in order to be empathetic, but it, it is there. I just have to slow down my thinking. And if that lives today in MBS to go actually just be real and think about people's real scenarios and what's going on. What were the beginning steps of MBS? Like when did you and Sam kind of turn around and be like, we want to do this? Yeah, so Sam had actually launched MBS back in... 2005 yeah when i was still at um at the hospital and it was to work around having children so she was doing basic bookkeeping for, for people and some mainly payroll because sam's background was within within payroll and that worked quite nicely in terms of you knew roughly when all the work was going to happen and you could plan around it all then as sort of the credit crunch hit in 2000 and Eight. And into 2009, I just started to see that I, w- I was the last in at the, the place I was in. And obviously, I've already said there was a almost who's been there the longest is the person who gets promoted. But therefore, I was also thinking to go, hang on, the person who, is, who hasn't been here very long is also the person who's most likely to go. And there was a lack of work, a distinct lack of work. I think, I think for a whole month, I sorted out old paperwork in the basement, like literally every day. Um, and I did probably two or three sets of accounts within about six months. And I was just like, this, this doesn't look good. It's boring as anything. I'm not sure how this business gets through this. Um, obviously I didn't really have an insight into what their financials were or anything, but I was just thinking it just doesn't feel good. Um, and I'd rather be in control and make my own move than that's it. Just the carpet's pulled out from underneath me at any point. So I'd actually lined up a couple of roles. Um, one I decided to to turn down. Um, it was too specialist. It was going into a particular tax. And I just, 
I didn't feel like it helped me get to where it was, where I was trying to go, which was to move our sort of bookkeeping payroll into a full accountancy practice. And the other was a good stepping stone, but they just kept stalling and kept going, oh, we're just waiting for another manager to be in place and just make sure that they agree. And then we're waiting for another partner to come in place and make sure. And I was just like, do you know what? Ah, I'm, if this is what it's like now for me to start, like, yes, you want me. Like, if you want me, start. Let's get going. And that was it. I just went, you know, I'm just going to quit. And we'll make it work. And there was a bit of planning behind it. A um, couple of bookkeeping roles you know, sort of lined up that would give me a basic wage and we could survive. And then just go, okay, we've got a year. Make it work. What are some of the biggest obstacles? Wide question. Honestly, in that first year, I don't think I felt like there were many obstacles. Um, we were on fire. I think by the end of that first 12-month period, we had nearly 100 clients. There was a, I was working a lot of hours. Um, cash flow was relatively good because we were signing people up on monthly payment plans and so on. So that, that was working quite nicely. I was a, a finalist for um, an accounting event competition for accounting technician of the year. Um, and I was a runner up in that off the back of everything I'd done. And I think that first year was just, it was actually dangerous. I think, I think it was a false sense of security. I think it was to go. Oh, this is far easier than I thought it was going to be. I've got this. I can't. Almost like I'm now something special because everybody was telling me, "No, it's really, really hard and difficult." And then it was then as we started to scale and we needed new you know, people to come on board. That's when it was it was difficult. There were probably four or five hires over the next two years or so that just didn't make it. They and we didn't know why. Yeah, we felt it was them. Didn't definitely didn't think it was us, and. We had one where we went on holiday and we just came back and that was it. They just didn't turn up, just didn't come back to work. Yeah, it was um, it was a strange experience. Couldn't get hold of them. They didn't answer the phone, wouldn't answer the emails. I think after five days, they basically responded by email and just went, yes, it's, I've decided it's not for me. Like, you've been here four months. You've said nothing. And then we were just like, we must be awful people to work for. What we must be doing something. It can't be all these people are the problem. It must be us. We must be doing something or not doing something. So we made a bit of a shift at that point to go, how do we make it a nicer place to work and what do we do? And we took on um we took on two apprentices to replace that one person who had gone. They're they're Lauren and Georgia, who obviously are, are still with us today. Um and actually the theory was if we take two, only one of them will make it anyway. And so we only planned, we only had one job available uh, at the end of that. But actually they, they were both so good that at the end of it, we were like, okay, how do we keep both? And that was our first sign to go, we can do this. We, we can get this right. Yeah, a good, a good first year, a turbulent two or three years off the back of that. And then starting to go, hang on, I can see, we can see a bit of success now coming back again as we've started to hire people who could be, yeah, could help us take us to another level. Would you say that was the big difference in changing it from, you know, just like bookkeeping to the more like advisory side of things was hiring people and kind of realizing that you can do this? No, I, I think at that point, we were still being a, a general compliance practice. Um, there were 
there were a degree of frustrations, I think, within the team. So it was mainly me leading things. Sam was quite, quite quiet within the business at that point. There was Lauren and Georgia and then a, another lady that was here as well at that point. And they were all basically assistants to me. So I was sort of the face of the business um, and sort of doing all the communication. They were doing all the mainly sets of accounts and tax returns and a few VAT returns. And we just got busier and busier and busier, or certainly I got busier and busier and busier um, because at our peak, we hit 600 clients. Trying to be the point of contact for 600 clients is hard. Yeah, it's um, definitely challenging. And there were constant moanings from from Sam about the hours I was working, the team about the hours I was working, and that was just actually something really just has to change. And yeah, we we then made the shift. I started to to read a lot of business books. I started to uh, speak to business coaches, attend sort of seminars and trainings, and just started to started to realise that whilst I did all these great things and all that. I was also the absolute problem. My the business had grown to be one that had you know, four, three, four employees at that point, and a number of clients. But my thinking was still back at me on my own, and that's why it wasn't working having a team because I wasn't thinking like operating with a team. So yes, we started to make the shift. We the first thing we did actually was we we doubled prices. Um, took six months for a business coach to to convince me, but we we. We doubled our prices and about 30% of the clients left off the back of it. But suddenly we got a business that was now generating more money, but I was working a lot less hours. And then we started to go, okay, well, we, that part was increasing prices, but you didn't give anything. We just went, you know what, we've not, we've mispriced ourselves. We've been priced too low. We need to increase the price, but nobody's getting anything extra. Then we started to look, okay, and go, you can't just keep doing that because that's not necessarily fair on people um you have to give something back in return um so then it was a bit of discovery to go what are we about what what do we really what do we do and it was all formed at that point around up-to-date financial information um so how do we get everybody having bookkeeping done regularly as opposed to it just gets done at the end of the year probably focused on that for a good 12 months so we've got a good then chunk of clients who are getting information more regularly. And it was only when I joined a, a mastermind that I then started to see the effect of having sort of strategic planning and knowing the direction that you're going in, that we then started to just, we did a bit of a brainstorming session off the back of that with the team and just went, what can we do that's above sets of accounts and tax returns? Because everybody's doing that that's an accountant, how do we really, really set ourselves apart based on the training that we've already got? We're not having to learn something new and do something different. And that was when we had this, right, well, we know about strategic planning and that sort of stuff. But actually, we also know about measuring uh, measuring financial performance regularly. You, you, What gets measured gets improved ultimately. And yeah, that's where we built out the current sort of system and processes that we have. Um, so this financial control, the clarity and the freedom and to go, actually, that's how we really help people. It's not accounts and tax returns and VAT. They're incidental elements along the way. But actually, people want those three things. This might be a tricky question, but would you do anything differently now? Obviously, there's a, a like, 
I'm sure there's a few things, but yes, yeah, so I'm I'm not somebody who lives life with regrets. I always think that I'm quite balanced. And Sam's very similar, actually. We make decisions at the time based on the information that was available to us. We make what we think is the best decision at that point. But I probably have one that I resisted for longer than I should have done, which was to allow Sam to do the day-to-day running of the business that I thought it needed like inspiration for the team and to go, oh, we're going to do this amazing thing and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. But actually, I think I've learned, well, I know I've learned over a period of time, that that's not the best. That can be controlled. So in our leadership team, we can have those conversations. Everybody's aware to go, we're just going to throw some ideas around. And we've selected the right people that can cope with that. But that actually, for the rest of the team, it just needs to be that this is the process. This is what we're doing. This is what works. We're going to see it through. And that's where Sam's strength lies. It's seeing a project through to completion. That it's, that's, that's not me. I need to, that last sort of 20 to 30%, I need to really, really focus on. Um, I'm more likely to start 20 projects and not finish any of them. So that's not how a business can be run. Um, but ultimately, if you don't finish the, finish the project, you're not getting paid. Yes, we have monthly subscriptions, but they're on the fact that we deliver certain outcomes. And that was what needed to change. We need to go actually has a focus on delivering the outcomes. And if we can't be high client numbers, this needs to be high relationship. And we're really adding value in the right places. Uh, I'm going to move on a little bit now more to one thing that's always interested me a lot about MBS is the yours and Sam's relationship and going into business with someone that you are married to because you're always kind of told not to do it <laughs> or like don't work with family. Um, how has it impacted the business, either good or bad? Or Yeah, we've been, we've been very, very clear from very early on to go, if there's a business disagreement, it doesn't go home. And if there's a home disagreement, it doesn't go to work. Like that, there has to be a line drawn at the door of each places because... I think both things, both methods are managing relationships. Uh, so the owners or the directors of a business, the leadership team of a business is about working out the best way to overcome something where you don't, you know what the outcome is you want to achieve, but you don't know how to overcome the obstacles that are stopping you getting there. Because if you knew how to overcome them, they wouldn't exist. Um, and I think it's the same in a relationship. You know what you're doing, but there's obstacles and everything along the way. There's no right and wrong answers to some things and you've you've got to work out the right compromises you've got to make to to give it a go and having that clarity has been really really key i think also knowing and identifying where our strengths and weaknesses are uh, and just letting that other person get on with it there needs to be little check-in points because sometimes you just need a bit of reassurance but I I know that my weakness is probably managing people. Um, But that's one of Sam's strengths, which is is then great because actually I can leave Sam to manage people and all of that sort of stuff. And I don't need to work hard to be able to do that. Um, The same, I suppose, the other way around, you know, that I get up in front of people and do talks, I'll, I'll do webinars, I'll do, yeah, all sorts of stuff. I'm prepared to be put on the spot in in 
networking events and so on. That's not Sam. So she knows to sort of, when those crop up, she'll just sort of pass the buck um, over to me. But I think that and that's such a strength, knowing where your weaknesses are, knowing where your weaknesses are and where you can go to overcome them is, is such a strength. I try to think if there's any times where it's not worked. There's bound to be. I can't think of anything off the top of my head because most of the time when there's something that's not working, we'll just go, okay, great, let's work it out. Um, Sam's probably better at me than that. I just want to sort of bury my head and hide things and go, oh, it'll be okay in the morning. Um, but Sam's much more, no, let's confront the issue, let's get it sorted and let's work out what the resolution is. But at the same point, I don't think it would work if we were, if we were both the let's not discuss it. Then when does it ever get discussed and fixed? And if we're both that we want to get on it now and get sorted, then I think you, you can end up clashing because you're, you're butting heads because you're both trying to, to rush for a, a resolution. So I think the, the different styles are good, a good blend. Yeah, it's like that yin-yang thing, isn't it? Yeah, well, I'm, sh- I'm sure there's relationships out there that are the same and they work. But from our experience, those opposites, they, they tend to, to nicely bounce off each other. That's a bit of a really cliche but what are the what are three things you would tell your younger self or teenage self or hmm. um you don't have to be invincible like it's, it's okay to be wrong that you have to have an element of confidence and an elegant element of um arrogance but at the same point there also has to be compromise you, you can't just go well it's just my way and that's it it's tough you, you have to be prepared to go okay i don't don't know this bit. I think they may be connected to that because then you're not trying to be infallible. It, it's seeing and spotting the strengths in others and praising them accordingly. That you're only as strong as the the weakest link in the chain. And if you're just putting everybody else down and making them feel weaker, you, you're actually putting yourself down uh, in the long run. So learn learn to praise other people where appropriate. Talk to them about any challenges and difficulties and where things have gone wrong and look to improve. That's fine, but bring the rest of the team up, empower people. And I think then finally it would probably be, it's okay to be selfish. And I mean that in the best possible way. Like it's not, it's not okay to be selfish at the detriment of others, but it's okay to be selfish in terms of if you're trying to, trying to better yourself and your family's life and everything you need. So for many, many years, we ran a business that the, the customer was just always right. And just sometimes they're not. Like this, you know, sometimes you've just misaligned. You've got the wrong person. They don't see the way the world the way you see it. And that's absolutely fine. But what you shouldn't now be doing is bending over backwards to accommodate them and their, their demands or their, you know, what they, they particularly want because it doesn't align with what you want and what works for you. And I think for too long, that was what I did. So it's okay to be selfish. Be the final. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed talking about life before MBS. Brilliant. Thank you, Liv. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Leaky Bucket Podcast. I'd love it if you could help spread the message by clicking subscribe and leaving a review. Also, please do reach out to me on LinkedIn and let me know your thoughts on this episode. You can also find more info and links in the show notes below. See you next time.